The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. but opposite version of ourselves. But what about when others see us in the mirror? What kind of image of us do they perceive? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and Harrods shopping bag, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's discussion covers the 2001 satirical spy film The Tailor of Panama, based on the novel by John Le Carre, directed by John Borman, and starring Pierce Brosnan, Jeffrey Rush, and Jamie Lee Curtis. My guest is Anthony Malone, and you join us circling the globe in a hovercraft. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Jeremy. Well, it's been a while since um, we've recorded together. Um, the listener might be interested to know that um, the last episode we did together, Mars Attacks, we recorded on the 2nd of January last year. Mm. And we planned on recording this episode back-to-back with it, but uh, you waffled so much that we ran out of time. And then I had to run the gauntlet of trying to travel back across South London um, through the nightmare landscape with no public transport and having to yell at various uh, public servants. Oh, happy days. Yeah, so I'm not going to come to your house again. Yeah, I get that a lot. It's it's just... (laughs) It's it's not worth the ordeal of trying to get there. The public transport was bad enough, but digging the moat and filling it with scorpions, I felt, was... You know, it's just not the message you want to send to house guests. I thought it was entirely appropriate in this particular situation. I'm, uh... Waffle, eh? <laughs> Are you up for some more waffle? Uh, yes, waffle B, in fact. So, your uh, obsession with... Pierce Brosnan is is both well documented and the subject of several case studies. Um, and um, you made it a condition of coming back on the podcast that we only do Pierce Brosnan related films. So Mars Attacks was a good was a good choice, but with the Taylor of Panama, I felt I was reaching a bit. Yes, I confess I'm I'm a bit bewildered as to why this film is in Cinema Limbo, uh, which is meant to be a forum for forensic reevaluation of uh, otherwise um, uh, ambiguous quality. So um, I, I disagree, by the way, that I made it a condition that I, I would only ever do Pierce Brosnan films, although I am well up for that. Let's do Death Train. Um, that's that's no. a cracker. Um I'm just trying to think if Pierce Brosnan's in Raise the Titanic. He's not, unfortunately. Uh, we're not doing. We're not doing Raise the Titanic. Stop asking. Well, I've watched it. It's shite. It's not shite. It is not. Would you rather watch? Here's a loaded question: Raise the Titanic or Wonder Woman 1984? He's thinking, listener. 
I would watch Wonder Woman 1984 f- because Race the Titanic is just boring and dull and tedious and uncharismatic. Whereas you could spend hours of happy uh, study picking apart all the things that are wrong with Wonder Woman 1984. You can get a lot. You can get a lot more out of that film, just, even though it is demonstrably far worse. Well, I'm very glad you said it's, that it's, last bit. It's like the difference between someone who's died of heart failure and someone who's died of necrotizing fasciitis <laughs> um, being hanged and um, eating arsenic. You're getting all this... I pain. mean, it's the, the, the condition of it is so, much more, is so much worse, but it's far more interesting to pull apart the bits. Well, I, I think you obviously hate women... And um, obviously, no, I don't. Women are great. No, 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 no. You can't, you can't diss Wonder Woman films. These, I prefer, I prefer women to you, frankly. I think um, I prefer women to me. (laughs) But um, I like the first Wonder Woman film. I, you know, was very vocal about that at the time. Yes, listener, we we are here to talk about uh, a John Le Carre film, but we have both endured uh, Wonder Woman 1984 and. uh, Neither of us were impressed, sadly. In fact, um, blown away by just how um, what a car crash of of bad choices it is. Um, but that's that's a discussion for another time, really, and probably not on this podcast. There are many on um, YouTube that pick apart the um, the storytelling disaster that is that film. Um, so, what with Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four and Tenant being uh, another. Um, frankly underwhelming piece of storytelling i'm thinking that of all the films that should have been released this year um no time to die is probably going to be the biggie with the best script well i mean i hope so um we've got there are all sorts of other things kicking around that look vaguely interesting yeah i mean amongst the big uh, industrial blockbusters oh oh yeah yeah those are the ones i mean i mean we've got um several Marvel movies, like four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got The Matrix Part 4, mm-hmm. which is coming out at Christmas. I know. I'm not really looking forward to that. But it's co-written by David Mitchell of Cloud Atlas. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, what else have we got? Godzilla vs. Kong? Yeah. I, I, I'm <laughs> not looking into that. Yeah, I know. This is all quality material coming down the line, isn't it? You know what uh, we need? We need some and you, quality. And you saw a film written by Chris Rock? <laughs> that just sounds like an Alan Partridge pitch, really, doesn't it? Um, I, I'm more in the mood for some nice middle brow espionage shenanigans written by an English. Um, I was about to say national treasure, but my mother would definitely say a national treasure. Um, starring a um, Bond actor who's trying to starring prove he can do more than the greatest actor of all time, <laughs> Jeffrey Rush. Uh, no, Daniel Radcliffe. Indeed, he is in this film. This is this is this is his film debut. I know. Apparently, people believe that he was discovered uh, under, you know, a tree for by the the casting agents of Harry Potter. No, he was. Um... No, I don't think any, I've never heard that because he's the only member of the the three kids in Harry Potter to actually have previous credits. And here's one of them. Yeah. Um, because he was also in a BBC version of David Copperfield. <laughs> 
Oh, really? As, as the young lead, yeah. It helps that both his parents were talent agents, which is, I think, partly what got him through the door and also why he was able to manage his fame well, because he had parents who knew the business and actually looked after him properly. And there's a character in this called Harry. Yes. That very, un- that very unusual name. Pierce Brosnan did a voiceover for um, a Harry Potter rip-off, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. I think he was a, either a... What was he? A, um... Poseidon, wasn't he? N- no, no. I think he was a centaur or, or a, a talking horse, something like that. Um, it obviously was rubbish because it's Percy... Mr. Ed? <laughs> Are you dissing Pierce Brosnan again? you comparing him to a horse? No, you said he played a talking horse. Some people say he's a talking horse. Yes, well, they probably need to have their medication increased. <laughs> I've recently started reading um, John le Carre's most famous work, which shares one of the words of the title, um, as my book group is covering Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy next month. Ah, okay. And I have never previously read any John le Carre. Uh-huh. Although my mother's quite a fan. Yeah. A lot of people say that. My mother's a great fan. I tried watching the um, BBC series with Alec Guinness as George Smiley. I got two episodes in and had to give up because I found it crushingly slow. Whereas the film version, I thought was just right. Well, I'm going to counterbalance that, but also... Um, you are not alone. And um, I was listening to, I'm sorry I haven't a clue recently, uh, an episode from, I think it was something like the, the late 70s or early 80s. It was clearly um, post the BBC adaptation of Tinker Taylor. And um, they do a round where you've, you've got to act out a particular, um, uh, uh, you know, it's like give us a clue. You have to act out a player, a film, etc. And Graham Garden and, and, um, uh, and, and Barry are asked to um, act out Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And what they do is um, Barry is Guinness talking ever more slowly. And Graham Garden is, is pretending to drop off and fall asleep. Um, the pacing of Tinker Tailor is at once the, the one thing that people took the piss out of. But also it's the one thing that these days is a great balm. Um, compared to some of the hyperkinetic stuff that we are um, um, that's forced on us, I like the uh, BBC adaptations immensely. But it took me years to figure out what was going on in them. I, I could not get my head around the plots. Um, but it's slowly become comfort viewing for me. I put it on in the background. It's a bit like a tone poem thing with Guinness noodling around London um, and and chasing down his his um, uh, Carla and all of that. Um, and like you, when when you suggested um, we do this particular podcast, the reason I was quite excited about this is not Pierce Broston, although I know you're not going to believe that. Um, it's because I haven't read a lot of John le Carre. I'm much more familiar with the adaptations of his work. And, um, and also, this particular one is obviously, as he concedes, it's a direct lift from um, uh, Our Man in Havana. And I definitely wanted to read some more Graham Greene. So, uh, as usual, doing Cinema Limbo opens up lots of interesting um, uh, passages and things to go off and explore. 
So I do. I know what you mean about the pacing of the BBC adaptations. I didn't particularly like the film adaptation. I found it a little ugly, um, and I thought part part of the fun is is the lugubriousness of the BBC adaptations. Um, the other the other criticism that Le Carre gets is that uh, is that his plots are very um, uh, labyrinthine and that um, he's he's not really interested in plots. He's much more about character and betrayal and secrets and all of that. Um, and as we will talk about it, uh, the plot in this is obviously lifted from our man in Havana. Must confess that I thought. Our Man in Havana was vastly better than The Tale of Panama, the novel. Um, and I wrote a couple of reviews of these books for my Goodreads page. Um, Our Man in Havana is much shorter. It's much more whimsical. Um, it's it's clearly much more of his of Green's entertainments. I loved the, lang- the use of language in it. The novel of The Tale of Panama uh, takes literally takes 100 pages to do what Graham Greene does within about 15 pages. Um, you're 100 pages in before um, Pendle even agrees to start or, or considers to start um, uh, whooshing up some secrets for Osnard. So um, did you enjoy the Taylor of Panama, the film? I did, yes. Um, I found it... Uh, I mean, I saw it in the cinema at the time and I found it quite... More lightweight than I was expecting. I mean, it's. I assume this is Le Carre's only comedy. Um, <laughs> it's it's very light comedy. It's satirical, um, but it's. I think any of any whimsy or the the conceit of it is coming through from Graham Greene. Um, I'll give Le Carre one thing with regards to this. the The stroke of genius is making him a tailor. Um, in Our Man in Havana. Um, I, th- I think it's Wormold is the name of the the protagonist in that, if I remember correctly. His um, his in is that he's um, a Hoover salesman, and so he gets to. I know he goes into all the embassies selling Hoovers and cleaning equipment and all of this, and he gets talking to all the, uh, the bigwigs. So, uh, in in defence of the tailor of Panama, I think the tailor motif and the idea which Le Carre unpacks throughout the entire novel and this film about the fabrication of things, about fitting suits to fit certain shapes, um, I think that's that is the stroke of genius of the tailor of Panama. Um, I took my mother and my brother to see John Le Carre at the um, the South Bank being interviewed by John Snow uh, about five years ago when um, his last smiley inflected novel came out and um, a huge auditorium uh, lots of the cast of the night manager were there um, and he he uh, gave a speech uh, uh, an essay essentially and then he did a Q&A with Jon Snow Jon Snow was hilarious he was fanboying over John le Carre like nothing else on earth he was thrilled to be sitting back and just listening to this man speak and um, he entranced the entire auditorium and he was giving a sort of tour d'horizon, a, a sweeping review of the current geopolitical slate. He was um, he was slating um, uh, the rise of Trump and all of this and, um, and doing it in this wonderfully cultured, eloquent voice. Um, and I think that's what you, you pay for when you, you buy a Le Carre novel, the, certainly later Le Carre. 
I think with his Carla trilogy, you're picking up um, the spying Argot that he invents, all the circus and the treasure and Merlin and all of this. Um, Latter-day, post-Cold War Le Carre, of which this is, this is an interesting example of one of his works where he's not quite sure how he's going to fit in the new order. So he's drawing upon the writers that have really inspired him. And he's trying to feed that into through his own um, prism of betrayal and storytelling and lies. And then he started picking off things like um, Big Big Farmer. Remember the Constant Gardener? Yes. I found that very dull. Um, and then latterly, over the last, what, five, ten years, there's been a real spike in adaptations. Hmm. I think, would you agree, the most famous of which is probably The Night Manager? Well, I would have said that it was sparked by the film version of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. But um, The Night Manager, I think, has been probably the most successful, but there have been a few others as well. Um, yeah, there was um, Our Kind of Traitor. Oh, yes. There was um, another one for the BBC. Oh, The Little Drummer Girl. I haven't got to yes. that. Again, I watched the first episode and found it very slow and unengaging. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I really didn't get get. Uh, I didn't agree with me. There was a most wanted man um, with Philip Seymour Hoffman in one of his last performances. He looked mm. ill in that film. He's meant to, um, and I. That's rather good. But it all looks very uh, grey, washed out, very Homeland esque. Um, but I think that's one of the better adaptations. Um, our kind of trait is a bit silly. Um, and no doubt we're going to get more. I wish they'd... Um, uh, I'd like them to do an adaptation with Oldman of uh, Smiley's People or just complete the Carla trilogy. Um, and as you say, they could strip away some of the um, the discursions and the flabbiness and all of that and, and bring it down under two hours. Uh, that would make a nice box out, really, wouldn't it? Yes, I mean... Uh, uh... The, the film of Tinker Taylor is slightly over two hours, I think, but only a little. And I was paying attention all the way through, very focused, and I had no trouble in following it at all. And I thought, well, this is this is clearly the right length for it. Maybe a little longer, slightly slower pace, so that fewer people are left behind. But how are you finding the novel? Uh, slow, but it's a novel, so it's it's kind of working on a different working on a different register or a different set of instruments so um mm. it doesn't really notice but it's very solid yeah he writes classical english prose he loves his subclauses his curlicued sentences um he's and and that's why he when he died um there were all these raves about his um his position in literature it's the fact that you know he's not just a spy novelist um, he stepped outside of that and um, it's just good quality English writing um, but I thought the novel of the Taylor of Panama was a slog to get through um, and you, he, you get the sense that he wants to regale you with his um, his opinions of what's going on in across the globe um, Le Carre loved hobnobbing with um, figures of power and, and getting into interesting places and and getting all the gossip, which made him beloved of politicians, obviously. Um, and I just think there's a little bit too much of that. There's a point in the novel, which I might regale you with later on when we get to it in the film, where he 
he comes out with a sort of little rant about the current state of England, which is clearly the author speaking. Um, but if you're of the same politics of Le Carre, and I am, you're on your feet cheering because it's written so well and it's so pointed and um, it's just great stuff to read. You know, it's um, he just can't do plot very well. Um, he, he's not, not doing action. He's the anti-Bond. Of course he is. Um, mm. Which makes it interesting to see James Bond in this film, of which they have a lot of fun with. I think the Carey, I think, found himself in the same position of a lot of people of that generation in that they are sort of people who would traditionally look towards the establishment but then realised that the establishment had gone so far the other way that they were now standing amongst socialists and wondering how they got there but um, nevertheless sharing their convictions Yeah, the older generation that's very pro-NHS, that's very pro-the welfare state um, yeah, as, as, as long as it's merited that kind of thing and is appalled by populism and cheap chicanery yeah of which there is loads in Pan in the tailor of panama um and and also le Carre, uh, just thought the current political classes the latter day political classes were a, an absolute bunch of shysters um and he's he's very good on that sort of stuff in um in tailor of panama the other thing that's in the novel which you certainly don't get much of in the film not much of but it is there is Le Carre's brilliance on English class war. Um, and the the film takes a shorthand approach to a lot of that. In the novel, that's, if you're English, specifically English, um, he goes for the jugular. He's very good on that sort of stuff. Well, the film's directed by John Borman, who has previous in Cinema Limbo as the director of Exorcist to the Heretic. And following that film's lack of success he, he did bounce back with Excalibur um, and then kind of had a, a mixed period during much of the 80s and 90s mostly producing films I think in Ireland um, The Emerald Forest I remember seeing in which he tried to promote his son Charlie as a, a new young star um, Hope and Glory about him growing up during the Blitz, which is the only film I've ever seen on a plane. Um, obviously a great film to watch while you're on a plane, about people being dive-bombed by planes. And um, ultimately, uh, after a few films about Irish domestic issues, um, produced this, which is one of, those, one of those Irish Panamanian productions you have these days. There are so many of them. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, an odd and, choice. I was. Um, it, it took me by surprise to see his name as the director. Uh, initially, I thought, "What? Not that John Morwen, surely?" Um, but actually, having thought about it, I think it's it is fairly much of a piece with the um, eclecticism of his career, um, the the film, and the choice of it as a, uh, a directing project, because uh, this film. This film is definitely the sort of thing that you go to see after an evening meal with your partner. You have a nice glass of wine. You go, shall we see something at the cinema? Well, look, there's James Bond with that nice Jeffrey Rush that you liked from Shine. And you think, oh, it's a John le Carre. Great, that's Spycraft. You go in, you watch it for two hours, you come out, you forget all about it, and you go about your day. Um, 
it's it's not something that you'd go away and actually think much about but when you do i think you start to notice that there are odd little eccentricities in this film um some slight tonal things going on there's one scene which i find borderline objectionable with jamie lee curtis towards the end um so as a project for Borman, um, I, I think he was answering two things. He was saying, I need to do a mainstream um, project. So I, I need to have some sort of um, success. It's a la carré. Great. That brings a degree of cachet and class. Um, and then, you know, he can approach it as, as not, a, not a sort of stylistic piece, but just as a straight piece of storytelling. Mm. Um, and so... You know, would you look at this film and think, yeah, the guy who made Zardoz made this? And went, uh... um, yes, having um, got through rehab and um, completed his course of therapy, this does seem like something that the director of Zardoz would do. <laughs> what, when he's had all the, the wackiness sucked out of his head? Yes, having had all the, um, the uh, marching powder uh, flushed away. I mean, like dicing with death going to Panama because it shares a border, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know. Oh, and of course, the 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 big difference between this film and the novel is that the, the novel came out before the handover of the canal, and this film uh, the, is set indeed straight after it, um, which seems to me to be quite a bizarre choice that they decided to do that. They could have made it a period piece and just gone. Let's pretend that the last five years haven't happened. Um, but they quite cleverly get away with it, with some slight change to the politics in the background. But um, yeah, as a project for Borman, it's it's not some uh, um, abstract, um, crazy art project. Certainly doesn't have any of the the, the high camp and over the topness of uh, Excalibur. What more's, more's the pity? It's set during a very narrow window of time as well between. Um control of the canal being handed back entirely to the, to the Panamanian government and 9-11 so that's a very when you know the, the whole geopolitical landscape shifted overnight and America's role overseas became totally different and it's a two year window mm. and I mean the film came out in the spring of 2001 so it's like six months later and it would have been a period piece yeah yeah i think um but in this film it has been handed back to panama yeah i mean as 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 was the situation when they were filming i, ex- I expect it would have been sort of spring of 2000 though i suppose so so up to the minute oh god yeah um you probably could not get more so but it's slightly strange that they they did decide to. I mean, I don't know at what stage in the project um, they had to do a rejig of the script. I bet that's documented somewhere. Um, I noticed Lacare's name is on the script. Do you believe Lacare actually had an input into the script? Well, um, thinking of other material, he's not credited on the, the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy script or the film, rather or um, any of the other projects I'm aware of. So I would say that he probably was involved. I mean, perhaps um, in terms of 
adjusting it for the the change in politics, he would have had input on that level. Uh, I can see Andrew Davies' fingerprints all over this. Uh, bring in the adaptation guy, um, but Stickler carry on the credits as script and producer for the cachet of the name. Make sure he's all over the posters. Get him out to do um, uh, PR for the the film, etc. But he wouldn't have to do that. Uh, uh, he he wouldn't have had to have writing credit just to do that. You know, he's you know J.K. Rowling has stumped up for the Harry Potter movies, and and she didn't have any direct creative involvement with them at all. But that's what I mean. I mean, um, the Fantastic Beasts. She does. She's all over. Yes, and those are terrible. I know. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, the Carrie, you know, could quite happily have come out and endorsed the movie and talked about it. Without having had the script, without, without having actually been directly involved in it at all, so I would say, yeah, he probably was reasonably involved with it, and you know, gave his stamp of approval to the, to the changes and to the finished product. Without, uh, I sense that too, too much involved. I think uh, uh, some nice long lunches between Andrew Davies and Le Carre. Um, Davies goes away and, and does the heavy lifting, and then Le Carre has final approval. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think that's probably the way that went. I'm sure that's documented somewhere. Have you seen Borman's um, uh, the the documentary by Borman's daughter about her father? No, because I've uh, I've dipped into that a little bit. He's he's. I mean, I'm I don't particularly want to diss the guy because I clearly it's um, it looks fairly raw. Uh, he's got a strange relationship with his daughter, um, and but he seems to see her as some creative equal and um the the documentary is is much more about um uh, the, uh, uh, just sticking a camera on him watching him walk around the house and the gardens interviewing and slowly developing more and more of a relationship with with her um mm. because he w- apparently wasn't a brilliant father and, and all of this but just watching the man um he just seems quite complicated. Um, uh, it is worth a watch, though. Um, but, uh, again, I think for him, this was just a straight point-and-shoot job. This wasn't a stylistic exercise. Um, you know, if you look at something like... I mean, let's take The Night Manager. Uh, widely uh, reviewed as uh, Tom Hiddleston's audition for James Bond, because he is in a tux throughout the time. Um, that's a very classy um, production. When you watched it, did you spot Le Carre anywhere? Yes. <laughs> oh, vanity. Yes. Well, you know, no more, no more so than Michael Wilson appearing in all the Bond movies. Yes. I mean, they do linger on his face a little bit too much, in my opinion. But, um, but yeah, if, if you know the man, you leap out of your chair when you spot him at that, just, that dinner table. Um no, no Le Carre uh, cameo in this film that I could spot. Um, he hasn't yet. He, he hasn't yet reached the Stan Lee level of his legacy. <laughs> the John Le Carre cinematic universe. Well, sure. I mean, you said yourself about doing the rest of the Carla trilogy. Oh, I'd love him. To... And and he is in the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy film. Oh, really? I haven't spotted yeah. him in that. Oh, well, don't tell me where it is. Let me find him for myself. I'll go away and rewatch that. Um, interesting. Okay, so um, with regards to this film, well, it starts with um, a CIA, uh, a CIA, 
MI6 agent named Andrew Osnard being told that he's going to be exiled to Panama for his various misdeeds, including, uh, I think, gambling away department money, um, sleeping with people's wives, and basically making himself persona non grata virtually anywhere where he might be useful. Yeah. So he's immediately set up as, essentially as, as an anti-Bond. This is, no, not an anti-Bond. This is what if James Bond was real? Wouldn't an asshole he actually be? Um, there's a couple of extra things about the, the opening of this film. Um, do you like the font of the credits? I saw this film about 18 months ago. You haven't reviewed this film? Oh, you don't do your homework, I've, honestly. I've been in lockdown for nearly a year. I was expecting to be here for three months. <laughs> okay, so the the film opens, Jeremy, with the same shot of MI5, Thames House. <laughs> so it's great being on the other end of this fridge. Yeah. <laughs> I will now regale you with factoids that uh, you've never heard of before. It opens on exactly the same shot of Thames House um, at dusk that appears in James Bond films. Um, and the font looks just an inch away from Comic Sans font. Oh, yes. Yeah. So bearing in mind that this whole thing is based on a piece of um, whimsy and it's meant to be slightly funny um, and and a little bit farcical, the font is an early indicator of, of the tone of this film. Um, and when this film goes into much more darker waters, that sits ill at ease with the little piece of whimsical confabulation that Green came up with and that Lucario is riffing on. Mm. Um, the shot of Brosnan that you see, um, he's just post-World World is Not Enough. Um, and th- frankly, the shots of Brosnan could be lifted straight out of that film. Um I also think the shots when he's talking to his his boss at in MI6 are oddly weird. First of all, um, the offices that they're in can't exist. Um, if they're meant to be in Thames House, they're on the wrong side of the Thames. Um, and it looks a little stagey studio green screeny. Um, and that could be a, a fact that it's 20 years old, this film. Um, but the casting of Brosnan in this film, I have a bit of a problem with, but we'll get to that. Um, but you're quite right. Um, they they start off by saying we're going to send you to Panama because you've done all the things that James Bond has done, which are wrong: um, drinking, gambling. Everyone knows you're James Bond. You slept with all the ambassadors' wives. Um, you're basically um, shunted out on gardening leave. And and, and Brosnan's expression being on first name terms with all the nightclub owners. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Mr. Bond, you're back again. Um, this is uh, basically Pierce Brosnan's attempt to show that he can do more than James Bond. Um, and that means that he gets to shit talk a lot in this film. Um, he's He still is very much James Bond. It's, it's The shadow of that character is over him in that film, and they're trying to play off it. Um, and it, honestly, I think Brosnan comes into his own um, over the last 10, 15 years where... Uh, he becomes, he grows into the character actor uh, role much more. Here, um, you know, I have to say, I think he's probably the wrong actor for this role, uh, but we'll get to that down the down the line. George Lazenby. Well, you know what, Lazenby, you know, 
The reason I've got a problem with Brosnan is that he can't do dissolute. You don't for a second believe that this man has actually got a rotten core. Um, he's he, he can play it. Brosnan will axe the hell out of it. But um, what if Connery was in this role? You'd believe him to be a thug who'd go sod the British, I'm going to make loads of money. Connery circa 1971. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I can imagine that. Yeah. Someone, someone who you just look at and you go, yeah, he's just... You're a nasty piece of work. And he's, he's, um, he's got a moral vacuum at the centre of him. Um, and he just wants money. And he's going to treat women horribly. Um, and he's going to yes, betray yes, his country. You are describing Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, I am. Loves, loves money, hates women. Yeah. Would like to be on the golf course. R.I.P. <laughs> God bless you, Sean. Um, and anyway, so once we know that this guy, Pierce Brosnan, um, Andy Osnard, and now there's a very John Le Carre name. You, because we're in these these waters with Le Carre, who is very attuned to class distinctions, that name instantly leaps off the page as him just... The, the fact that it's not Andrew, but Andy, Le Carre has fun with. And Osnard is a really odd, um, a, 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 a very odd surname to give this this particular character. It's not a Harry Palmer. Um, that name was invented for the films, of course. Well, it was. I, I concede that. Yeah. And James Bond was very. It's meant to be a very flat, anonymous name. But Andy Osnard, um, you, you can immediately sense Carrie's ha- uh, Carrie's hand in that. Um, but anyway, once once um, once the bros is condemned to Panama, we then get a little tutorial essentially. Yes, um, the the tailor himself, Harry Pendle, is shown in the construction of a suit um, under the supervision of the ghost of his mentor, his uncle Benny, played by. Played by um, Nobel laureate Harold Pinter, the 20th century's greatest playwright. And man in Yeti suit. No, that was a different. That was a different Harold Pinter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he says. Um, that's that's that has been investigated. It's not him. Yeah, by the police. <laughs> there, there was this. There was this story that Harold Pinter had appeared in um, in a Doctor Who serial in 1967, not playing a yeti, but playing a monk in a Tibetan monastery, um, because the actor was credited as David Barron, which was a name that Pinter used in some of his acting work. But Pinter had given up acting by 1967, and there was another actor called David Barron who has a bunch of other credits. So it's just coincidence, and also it doesn't even look remotely like him. Details. Yes, the devil's in the detail. Well, there goes that gag. Um, <laughs> well, you've missed a couple of things. Um, it's not really a ghost. Or is, or is he? When you first see um, Harry Pendle, he is in a white suit. Um, and bearing in mind that Guinness was in the, the famous adaptation of um, uh, Our Man in Havana, and Guinness was in a film in The, in the Man in the White Suit, and there's a lot of shots of um, Jeffrey Rush in his white suit in Panama with the the nice hat, which if you squint, um, you could say, yeah, it's definitely um, Alec. Um, 
Well, I, he's wearing a, a light tropical suit in very hot weather. I, I, I didn't make that connection because I felt it was probably just a coincidence. No, I, I definitely got Guinness vibes off um, of his look, not necessarily his character or, or the way he's playing it, but... Um... But anyway, uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other. In um, in Harry's uh, tailor shop are pictures on the wall of Connery, um, of Jack Nicholson, and um, he has a lot of um, uh, clients. And he says, and I quote, um, I thought you'd like that one, sir, Mr. Connery's choice. As soon as I saw you, I thought, who does he remind me of? And that's it golfer's shoulders the film is winking at the audience yes already um so it's a little bit of fun it's a little bit of like we know we've got a james bond in our film and uh, so we're just going to mention it there's no hint here that this is going to go to some rather darker places much more choppier political waters um but you're right um and what I said about the, the slight st- strange tonal things in this film are um, a good example is the appearance of uh, Uncle Benny, who is is this sort of Greek chorus that appears from time to time throughout the film, um, whispering into um, Harry's ear. Um, Pinter's putting on a, a sort of Essex accent, and for reasons that will become clear. Um, and uh yeah there's a big picture of uncle benny on the wall of the shop um but most of the credits play out as you say over a sort of benny hill speeded up version of um of harry making a suit and making a suit fabricating a tale is all what this film is about andy uh having arrived in panama is watching harry from afar having picked him out as a likely source. Um, and um, during these scenes, we get a bit of a, a sketch of what Panama itself is like. Did you feel that um, the country's portrayed in a realistic way? Well, I don't know what Panama's like, to be honest. Um, I thought it just looked uh, busy. Um yeah, I didn't really have a, a take on the realism of it. It seemed pretty realistic to me. Have you been to Panama? No, but um, the film did struck me as being quite cynical about the country, as it being um, quite corrupt. I mean, it, the, the, there is the, the hangover at having been uh, ruled by Noriega. Yes. Um, who I believe was uh, installed by the US government, who then later removed him. Um, yes, it looks... Let me just adjust something. That's a bit better. Um, Put your trousers back on, please. (laughs) It's a running gag, isn't it? Um, (laughs) I have to say... Not the way you do it. (laughs) The the Panama thing... I have to say, historically, I know very little about the country, uh, and I have only the barest understanding of the whole... um, uh, the politics around the canal, and probably uh, only through the um, the Le Carre novel. So I don't have the take on um, the state of it at the time. Um, what I do know is that as Jamie Lee Curtis is on her way to uh, dropping the kids off and um, and heading to work, the film makes a big uh, point to show her proud of her job. 
she likes going to work basically for the president. Um, she's got a, a job in some great big uh, government offices and notes that she is the US character in this novel. Um, and she is the, the, um, the moral uh, person <coughs> compared to Harry and compared to Osnard. She's the one who is, ends up horrified by all the, the, the talking of tales and what might happen politically. Um, I wasn't sure of... Um, one thing I did pick up on, I think, was Jamie Lee Curtis appears to be wearing a crucifix, or a, or a cross rather than a crucifix. But I think um, they're taking their little daughter to a Jewish school, and um, Harry is very eager to make sure that she's done her homework um, on William Blake. He's hot on her studying English. He's a good father. Um, there's no sense that he is dodgy, that he is um, a bad man. Um, Rush isn't implying that he's got some uh, dark secret or anything like that. Um, we are meant to believe at this stage that Louisa, which is Jamie Lee Curtis's character, and Harry are just a really good, nice couple. Um, as we will see, um, they will be tested. In Our Man in Havana, um, Wormold is a single parent, and his daughter has got a very expensive taste in horses. Um, and he is under financial pressure as well, which is the same as what we're about to find out. Um, Harry goes to uh, Andy. Hang on a minute. What have I written here? <laughs> Um, Harry has to go to, to uh, see his bank manager, I think, and uh, he's paying back a loan on a farm that he's bought out in the country. And we get cutaway gags to the, the lazy farm foreman and the water issues. We and do. And we see that there is, there is a degree of deception there because apparently the farm is, according to Harry, very um, well run and prosperous, but it's actually just a load of desert mm. run by um, a group of slovenly yokels yeah it's not the greatest depiction of uh um, panamanian working class that that might happen but again it's a gag and we're meant to believe that harry just believes the best in people he's been sold a duck um and now he's unfortunately uh in debt and people are calling in uh the payments um he also says that he bought it with louise's inheritance lie number one or rather deception number one um and the the guy that he tells this to comes out with the line well you're the storyteller harry um which is why this the writing of this novel chimes with le carré all of harry's storytelling is le carré's storytelling um and there's a metaness to what's going on here which is what how we describe it these days but anyway, Harry goes back to his shop. Uh, we meet his um, assistant, a young woman named Marta, who has been in some way burned or disfigured. And we later discover that that was from when she was a, a prisoner during the Noriega regime and she was part of the opposition. Yeah, Marta is a bit of an on-the-nose name. Uh, he tells her, you're an angel. Um, and... 
I uh, I believe there is um, that this is a character straight from the novel, and she has a slightly different function in the novel. Um, but she's also uh, someone with a very good moral radar, um, which comes in handy uh, when she says to Harry that there's someone in his shop to see him. Um, which turns out to be none other than James Butner, sorry, Andy Osnard. And um, they do something interesting here compared to the novel. Um, I know it sounds a tiny detail, but Brawson's sitting down. In the novel, Le Carre makes a big deal about how Harry is the one who likes to receive his clients for the first time sitting in this grand chair and looking very much of the, um, that someone that they can confide in, that he built, wants to build the relationship. Their first contact in the novel is actually by phone. And this is what I mean about the novel um, having much more of the class war thing going on in it than this film. Because in the novel, Le Carre brilliantly uses that first phone call between Osnard and Pendle to unpack the class distinctions. Both men are assessing the other just on the other's voice. So all of the slight glottal stops the 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 dropped consonants and all of this are uh, implying entire backgrounds for these men um harry's listening to osnard's slightly more cultured voice um and thinking all sorts that he's um got a, a, a much less shady background than he actually turns out to have um anyway brosnan has come for um to see someone He's come to um, uh, meet Mr. Braithwaite as well, who it turns out is unavailable. That's saying and something. We, <laughs> and we find out later rather why. And um, they go through the uh, process of uh, fitting Andy for a suit. Um, there are some nice little details that uh, Harry says that uh, Andy's waist is a 34 plus, uh, meaning it's plus lunch. Yeah. And um, when he asks delicately whether or not Andy dresses to the left or to the right, he says, oh, it just bobs around like a windsock. Yes. Yeah, Brosnan is enjoying all of this. Having been in the Bond straitjacket, um, he gets to be uh, rude and talk naughty. Um, the thing about the, him coming to see Braithwaite uh, is a plot thing. And it instantly sets up the fact that Osnard knows more about harry um than he's letting him letting on the mm. fact that he's citing braithwaite that he's that he came to see specifically him is picked up on later um, well it's picked up straight away by uncle benny well that's very true of course yeah he's constantly the, saying watch yourself son the film um never sort of comes down on one way or the other whether or not uncle benny is real in in literal terms whether or not he's an actual ghost or if he's just a figment of um, Harry's imagination the way I read it is he's sort of he's Harry's inner voice he's that yeah. he's sort of some kind of vestigial conscience but not quite a conscience because he doesn't steer him away from uh, the bad towards the good he's just that that's uh, remaining vestigial piece of mm. criminal mouse yeah, that uh, Harry um, has expunged in favour of being the successful family man who helps his daughter with her William Blake homework. Yes, and 
Benny is is always saying to uh, Harry, um, "Watch yourself, son. You watch it with your storytelling. You're sailing into choppy waters here." Um, he sounds a bit like Del Boy, pins to putting on the Essex accent, um, and it's it's a dramatic device. I don't think it's supernatural. There's nothing else in this film that even hints towards the supernatural. No, not at all. But it's it's a way of reading it. There's nothing yeah. that says definitely that he isn't. It's just True. it would be weird if it was. It would be. Um, uh, I t- I take it more of um, more kind of in tune with the developments and the backstory between the two of them. That Benny was such a strong voice in Harry's upbringing. Um, that not only did Harry then go on to do something really stupid on behalf of his uncle, but he remains this strong voice in his, um, as you say, it's basically an inner voice. Um, a Greek chorus commenting on proceedings. Mm. Well, Andy, I think, gives away almost immediately that he knows about Harry's background, that he was an arsonist who fled to Panama to set up a new business. Um, at which point, I think, doesn't Andy immediately spark up a cigarette? Um, he might do. I didn't. I didn't spot that. Um, uh, I absolutely would think that he did, and uh, because Brond would want that. Um, Brond, um, Brosnan would want that if he's mucking about with uh, James Bond conventions. Well, to to push it a bit further, when um, Harry, I know, I know, what ex- you're say. explain explain it away. He says, "Oh, come on, don't be a <laughs> Harry." Yeah, yeah, and again. Um, that's just trying to explode the Bond image. I just don't think Pierce Brosnan pulls it off. Um, you want someone who is morally dissolute to come out with a line like that. And um, that's not Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan Tim- appears in Mamma Mia, for God's sake. Timothy Dalton. Dalton would nail it. But it, but Dalton is, is... And I was thinking about Daniel Craig, whether he could pull off it. But those two are just too... Um, they are, they certainly can give the sort of the hard men side to it. Dalton's got too much of the romantic hero uh, Heathcliff vibe to him. Um, I'd want someone... uh, It's so difficult to... um, There are a couple of American actors that I think you could probably pull it off. Um, But you'd want someone to think, yeah, this guy's from the sewer. He's... um, uh, you know, he he may scrub up well, but you can see it written on his face that um, he will he will think nothing of betraying everybody, and you just don't get that from Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan's a marketing device for this film. Yeah, I mean he 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 is deliberately undermining his Bond image, but he's not actually <laughs> he's not he's doing everything he can within the boundaries of his other contract. Because yeah. his contract with the broccoli stipulated he cannot appear in any other production wearing a dinner jacket. <laughs> Which is because such a... That, because that is the Bond uh, image. So he doesn't wear a dinner jacket at any point in this film. Yeah. He's swearing, he's being awful, he's, he's doing all these terrible things, but he's doing it all within the boundaries of his existing financial agreements. Yeah, yeah. The, the shadow of Eon looms large over his yeah. professional life. Um, but if you bear in mind the next Bond film he did was Die Another Day and that was seen uh, particularly the first publicity shots from that film was seen as uh, oh my god he's grown a horrible big beard Um, he gets really roughed up at the start and uh, he's in jail for a hundred years it's um, not what you know he's still playing with the Bond image right at the start of that film 
and then of course it goes straight down the toilet for for the first 25 minutes (laughs) die another day is really interesting until harry halle bellary turns up at which point it's no before that really when when yeah when he gets picked up by um mi6 again and they're and he's in a coma and they're (laughs) investigating they're investigating him with magic sci-fi machinery and says oh liver's in a bad state must be him then that's the point where it lapses into being a Roger Moore Bond film. Yes, you're probably right. Yes, I, I mean, and, and in fact, the, the, the theme, and in fact, Madonna's theme song as well. Well, there's that, which is, which is a shame because the actual opening titles are sort mm. of filling in the 18 yeah. months that Bond's in captivity. That works well. It's just that the music's terrible. Well, the next time they did that, um, where the opening credits are part of the actual ongoing story, um, were for the next film. Um, Casino Royale, where Bond oh, yes. gets um, um, up up uh, graded to 007 status. Um, they 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 figure out that time how to make it work, and I think then again the problem is we need a good song. Well, now we've got Chris Cornell and David Arnold doing the music, mm. and that's fine because they know what they're doing. Mm. I know, God dying on the and day. the and the, the 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 Casino Royale title sequence is probably my favourite in the series. I uh, do you like I. Yeah, I mean, I, I like um, obviously um, the Moonraker it, opening credits. It, it, take, it takes it takes the whole playing card motif and makes it work so brilliantly. They have all these people bleeding, but they're bleeding little heart shapes. Yeah, I, that's I, clever. I just find that a little bit too obvious. <laughs> I it, well, it's it's just you, meant to be sim, sim, symbolic. It's not meant to be you've complex. Got, you've all, got a big cheesy this, grin on your face. It's this overall. Aesthetic of ha- of everything relating back to playing cards. Yeah, I think you, it's clever. You watched Casino Royale recently, I believe, and from your report, I, I don't believe you particularly enjoyed it. Well, I mentioned this to you the other day um, yeah. that uh, in preparation for watching No Time to Die, I was going to rewatch all the Daniel Craig Bond films, but um, I watched Casino Royale in February 2020, and then of course. Literally everything else happens. So that well, okay, well that's going on the back burner then. So I haven't seen Casino Royale in a bit over a year. Where you're picking up the idea that I didn't enjoy it is another matter. Um, you said you I can't that... you can't remember anything about it. I I took that as a criticism. Yeah. No, it's because it was saw it over a year ago. Because if I was if I wanted to watch you know all the films together, why would I leave in a year long gap between them? I'm going to have to watch Casino Royale again, and then watch the others. Right. I'm not okay. going to. I mean, although there was a two-year gap between Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, I've got these on my shelf. I don't have an excuse for it. Yes. Well, um, enough of uh, Casino Royale and um, the delights of Eva Green. Um, Brolson is having fun trying desperately to do what um, Connery was doing um, after his Bond stint, which is to extend his range and. Um, to do fun stuff and Brosnan has gone on to do lots of interesting stuff um, this film was made in 2001 we we get a cut to Jamie Lee Curtis in the office at in 2001 and it's very amusing to see the office of that time with the computer this huge great big uh, beige monstrosity sitting in the corner of the office these days everyone's computers are in their, their actual um, pockets um, are you sure that's a computer it wouldn't have they wouldn't have been using desktop machines that is a computer. Yeah. Oh, maybe it's a server. No, no, big screen, big white thing. It's it's looks frankly out of date even for two thousand and one. Um, 
Panama is not the richest country in the world. No, no. I mean, you're lucky they're not using BBC micros. So the casting in this film, um, Jeffrey Rush is uh, a good character actor. Um, he kind of gives the same performance uh, in The King's Speech that he gives in The Tailor of Panama, um, which is just a, a, you know someone who's got a trade that is required and has a family and, and all of this sort of stuff, um, has to keep a big secret. I haven't seen Shine. That was huge at the time. Do you remember that coming out? Yes, I have seen it since then. Yeah, but um, um, it's a totally it's a totally different performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, David Helfgott is a, is a completely different personality, and the uh, I mean his, his his mental illness was very damaging to his ability to communicate with others. So he's not the you know the, the casual conversationalist that yeah. Harry and. Uh, his character in uh, the King's Speech are, but on the other hand, I mean, um, the scene at the at the beginning where we see Harry cutting the suit—that's Jeffrey Rush doing all of that, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think he would um, have enjoyed doing that. And at the same time, well, at the same time, in the same way, um, he learned to play the piano for Shine, and the sequence where he's uh, in a in a restaurant and just picks out a few notes on the piano. And someone says, oh, go on, play us a tune then. So then he plays perfectly The Flight of the Bumblebee. There's, you know, insanely fast piece of music. And you can see it's actually Jeffrey Rush doing it. And he plays it perfectly all the way through. And the entire mm. restaurant erupts in, a in applause. So that, that sort of learning the crafts of the individual characters he's playing, I think is, that's that's a running element. I think it's not so much the case in the King's Speech because it's speech therapy that he's working on. Yeah, yeah. Brosnan's casting we've talked about, we think that's um, a marketing gambit and it gives the actor involved uh, a chance to play against a famous character that he plays. Uh, but what about Jamie Lee Curtis's um, casting in this film? Um, I think she's in this phase where she's building her career as a character actress, but I just think um, would you look at the the genius comic actress in a fish called Wanda and then just cast her as the wife uh, in some middle brow thriller. I think it's a waste of her talents. Um, she acts her socks off, particularly towards the end. Um, but I don't know. And she's also involved, unfortunately, in a scene at the end, which I really didn't like. Um, but again, I suppose it's a marketing thing. She was bankable. Yes, yeah, she's a star name, and she's struggled to find a niche for herself, I think, over the years. Mm. Having started as a horror actress, branched out into comedy, and then later on into, into more serious work. And then sort of looped back, really, with um, the revival of the Halloween films. Mm. Because um, her performance in that thing is possibly the performance of her career. I haven't, um, I haven't seen those. I must catch up with those... Um... In fact, I was listening it's, to your um, Halloween three season of the Witch podcast recently. His cinema about eating itself, um, and yeah, your talk of the current renaissance of the Halloween films did make me want to to seek them out. But I'm not a big horror fan. It's the the I was I was so pleased when I saw it because I really wanted it to be good <laughs> after all those terrible sequels, yeah. and they have a they have a 
they've got Jamie Lee Curtis back, they've got proper writers who really care, and it's really good. And it's an it's an intelligent, thoughtful drama about not quite survivor guilt, but survivor's trauma. Yeah, yeah. Combined with a really well constructed horror thriller. Yeah, it sounds really interesting and I, I'm And and all the stuff I've heard about what they're planning for the the next film, it sounds like this this is what I was going to do when I had the rights. Yes, yeah. Um, all the stuff about you know the the the, you know, the 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 climate of fear in the town and paranoia and seeing Michael Myers in every street corner, that kind of thing. This is this is the kind of thing that I wanted to do. So I'm delighted <laughs> that someone that someone who's doing it who has both skill and money. Yes, and her most recent um, uh, character acting role is in, of course, Knives Out, which was um, a, a huge piece of uh, wonderful cake from Ryan Johnson, which I enjoyed immensely. Um, and she, all of all of the actors and actresses in that in that film are given uh, prime pieces of writing to play. And um, I loved Curtis's performance in that film. She plays very well against Daniel Craig. She does. Have you seen the two of them being interviewed together? I think I have. They had quite a, a strong quite, chemistry. Quite a rapport. Um, I think they do an interview for something like This Morning or The, the Ones Show. And she's she's clearly in awe and not least, uh, not a little bit in lust with Daniel Craig. And Craig is sitting there with this great big Cheshire cat grin on his face because he obviously loves her as well. And um, it's, it's a great delight to see. It's... Um, and Knives Out is great fun as well. I'm looking forward to Ryan Johnson's next... Um, I'll tell you what. I'm looking forward to Ryan Johnson's next um, next thriller vastly more than Branagh's next Agatha Christie adaptation. Um, I'm is not looking forward to... Looking, is anyone actually looking forward to Branagh's Death on the Nile? No, and I've seen the trailer and it looks an absolute car crash. It looks horribly stagey. Um, and I just don't buy... I can't stand Branagh's performance as Poirot either. Um I saw the um, Peter Ustinov version about a year or so ago. Oh, it's great. And I thought, yeah, this is all on location, mm. very naturalistic, very cinematic, all sort of nicely constructed through editing and flashbacks mm. to illustrate things, and written by Anthony Schaffer, the great screenwriter. Who's written this? The guy who wrote Blade Runner 2049? Mm, I know. And it's and clearly almost entirely shot in studio with lots of green screen and it looks fake and phony yes it really does um yeah well we'll see it's probably going to come out in about 2025 the way the world is going anyway where were we um harry takes andy to meet the elite of panama the Um, 30 the 30 ruling families yes where their reputations hang in closets in order to get their shape back and there you go. Isn't that a nice description? <laughs> he, he also refers to Panama City as Casablanca, but without the heroes. Yeah, and that's, again, a line that um, I think Lacari was using that in um, in interviews about the novel. Um, I, I can't remember whether that actually appears in the novel, but it's a great line. Um, but when you think that Casablanca itself only had two heroes at a push, the chief of police at the end and um, and Rick, of course... Um, it was it was a den of thieves. It was Tatooine. Yes, well, the um, of the people who are actually living in Casablanca, because you would count um, Ilsa and Victor Laszlo as well. But yeah, they're, they're passing just, through. They're, they're passing through. Yes. 
It's full of pickpockets. Yes. Um, it's it's full of people desperate to get to get out and home and, and all of that. Um, but yeah, it's a great line, Casablanca without the heroes. Um, I mean, frankly, that should have been um, the lead line on the on the poster. Um, you don't want to compare. You don't want, in the advertising for your movie. You don't want to, to compare it to another to fam- famously much better movie. I mean, Tale of Panama's pretty good, but you don't want to compare it to Casablanca <laughs> because that's not really fair. I can hey, see it's like Casablanca. No, it's not. Uh, I can see John Borman doing that. <laughs> I think John Le Carre might have stopped him. Yeah, he might have done a little bit, but. Um, I would be up for that. Anyway, um, Brosnan's sizing up the ladies at this party, um, and and there's the slightly shady, um, slightly gangstery types who are um, right. And and Harry, of course, has entrance into all of this because he is their tailor. It's a great inn, as I said. It's a great way for um, Harry to to get into storiness, basically. It's it establishes an intimate relationship yes. with all these men of power. Um, yes, and and Harry's storytelling and yarn spinning of oh yes, I made a suit for Noriega. Mm. It it puts him in the position of being like a power broker. Like yes. um, I'll tell you a TV series I've been watching recently, The Blacklist. Oh yes, with James Spader as the concierge of crime, the man who can hook up you know a terrorist with the right kind of rocket launcher, that kind of thing. Oh yeah. And he's fantastic, and it's a very similar kind of character. He's he's not necessarily a bad person, but all his clients are bad people. Yeah, every everyone he knows is evil, <laughs> but so does that make him evil? Yes, I have seen the first episode of the Blacklist. I I did enjoy it immensely. Uh, I think it's the one where he just um, rings up the FBI and, and says, um, "Come and get me." He he walks into the FBI's. <laughs> reception and says oh just just let them know that I'm here and then he takes his hat off, kneels down on the ground puts his hands behind his head and then the FBI agents come in and he's just ready for <laughs> them a great opener but he's, he's, he's peak James Spader all the way through and it's great that an actor that distinctive now has this massively successful star vehicle yes the Spader from uh, Sex Lies and Videotape and by the way Sex Lies and Videotape um, is apparently going to get a sequel. Have you heard this? Soderberg no. is Soderberg is apparently um, coming up with part two. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that, uh, but uh, how have you seen Sex Lies and Videotype? Did you catch that many years ago? Yes, I've seen it on TV, um, and I've seen a few of Soderberg's other. Um, Micro-budget productions over the years—they're usually you know, quite interesting little experiments. So at this party, um, it is a guy called Mickey. And uh, how exactly do we feel about the uh, um, famous Irishman Brendan Gleeson playing a uh, Panamanian revolutionary? Um, well, I feel probably that he had to be cast so that they could get Irish money. Well, that's a very good point that I hadn't thought of. Um, yes, you have, you, that you have to have it like, and possibly another reason why Pierce Brosnan is in it. Yes, um, the Gallic because, the Gallic pound. Yeah. Um, so Brosnan casting Brosnan is you know, fine if he's playing an Englishman. Casting 
the famously Irish Brendan Gleeson as a Central American ex-revolutionary yeah. is a bit of a stretch. Speaking of Steven Soderbergh, he did cast a Hispanic person as Che Guevara, not <laughs> a burly Brendan Gleeson. <laughs> That's very true, yes. Uh, Benicio, wasn't it? Benicio del Toro, yes. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, where was where was Guevara from? Cuba. He wasn't from Cuba. No, he wasn't from Cuba. Oh, um, was it something like Argentina or something like that? Yes, of course he was. Yeah, um, because, I uh, because Del Toro is uh, Puerto Rican, I think. I recently I think. read um, uh, a James Elroy novel, American Tabloid, which is all about the the whole um, Bay of Pigs, Cuba, all of that, and um, so I've been doing some reading about that, and I must watch. Um, the Soderbergh two-parter um, Che to uh, to get some intel on this. I um, watched the first film and I found it very dull. And I oh, really? Watched the second, yeah. Mm, okay. Um, it's another. It's another of Soderbergh's experimental type films, but done on a much bigger budget and scale. Well, I might go for a documentary then. But it's but it's more that he's trying to. He wants to be historically accurate. He wants to be. Um, you thinking about what's the, adge- what's, what's, what's the adjective for fidelity? Very similitude. No, what's the adjective for fidelity? Um, accurate, true. Um, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's an adjectival form of it though. Um, oh, I know what you mean. Uh, not it's going to be something like um, I can't remember. I'll look it up on um, dictionary.com. I want to know now. Oh. Cinema Limbo giving you English lessons as well. Well, it is hey, John McCurry. If it was, if it was dictionary limbo, then I would know <laughs> off the top of my head, wouldn't I? <laughs> Hold on, listener. The sound of men. Oh, faithful. Yeah. Or fidelitous. I thought it was going to be something like fidel- fidelious it's, or something like that. It's it's much more fidelitous to the uh, oh. to the true story. Oh, it's uh, he's he's trying he's trying to be faithful to the, uh, are, the the facts rather than taking any kind of political position. I do like the elegance of your vocabulary. It's um, a pleasure to listen to you, Jeremy. Ta. <laughs> anyway, this character Mickey uh, is drunk out of his skull, and so our our uh, protagonists um, Harry and Andy drag him out of the place. Um, he's this uh, Mickey is ranting and raving about how apparently the gangsters in charge of Panama have sold the country out and um, that they had everything they had that God needed to make a paradise is what they say. Rather uh, amusingly, um, for fans of Breaking Bad, there's a um, one of these gangsters is the guy in the wheelchair who only taps to communicate in Breaking Bad. Um, Mark. Oh. Oh. This will be impressive. No, he's reaching for his phone. No. Cheat. He's instantly recognisable if you're a big fan of Breaking Bad. And he's very well cast in this film as uh, one of the slightly dodgy types that are apparently running the show. Mark Margolis. Mark Margolis it is. And anyway, um, having had a nice ride through Panama um, with um, Louisa um, and, and uh, in, earlier in the film, and Harry giving out bits of cash to uh, to people, um, they now drive away from this club with the drunken Mickey, and the camera focuses on Brosnan, and what he sees is definitely the dark side of Panama. 
So it's much the the part of Panama that they go to is much darker, much more filled with street workers. It's much more run down, um, and they get Mickey home basically. And um, his backstory is that unfortunately um, he was chucked into prison by Noriega, um, and the last thing that Mickey wants ever is to go back to prison. Mm. Um, dot 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 um, Andy of course calls him some shagged out old wino delightful but um, Harry spins a yarn that Mickey is still involved with the silent opposition indeed 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 so there's this sort of little tacit deal um, growing between the two men that Andy wants gossip about the elite Um and now he wants to slightly up the ante. He says, no, I want to hear some more political stuff. And um, Harry is playing into this and saying that actually this um, shagged out old wino is part of um, the silent opposition who want to try and um, bring down this, this corruption in Panama, which isn't true. It's uh, complete fabrication. It's completely folks. fabricated. Yeah. yeah. And... You might be asking at this stage, what is it that is making Harry uh, spin a tail? Um, and indeed, we are going to find that out. It is embedded in his character, because this is a character piece, folks. It's not an action movie. Um, if you want to see good character work, this is it. Um, and he goes to the embassy the following day. Yes. And um, is able to speak to the ambassador, who is apparently an old friend of his, and played by no less than John Fortune. Yes, indeed. Um a good piece of casting. He tends to play uh, bumbling English bureaucrats, um, mm. uh, and he, of course he's he's famous in the UK for his bird and fortune uh, dialogues, which are, are wonderful pieces of um, sort of to and fro's around particular political top hot topics, and uh, those things are great. Uh, Brosnan's in full James Bond mode. He's swagger, sunglasses. Um, and there is indeed a, uh, a female adjutant here. There's um, a character called, I believe, is Francesca, played by Catherine McCormack, who was in this film. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. What are you talking You're about? You're a human IMDb. Uh, you're the multi-winner of the BFI quiz. Um, when yeah, I, not usually on my own. When I and this is not for the record, listener. Um, when I went to see uh, the Mark Kermo show being recorded with Jeremy, who very generously got us all in with uh, tickets. Oh um, yes, so I did. Uh, Mark Kermo asked a question of the audience, who answered the question out loud. Who was the only person in the audience of the several hundred people in the room who knew the answer? That's yeah, why was, you're downloading. It was, it was me. Yeah. That's why you're downloading this podcast, folks. <laughs> it was. Um, he read out a, a tagline from a film, and I was the only one who recognised it. So that's why I think you're a, a human IMDb. Catherine McCormack was um, Mel Gibson's love interest in Braveheart. I've not seen Braveheart. Don't see Braveheart. Do you want to know okay. how? Do you want to know how to immediately rub a Scotsman up the wrong way? Um, call him tight-fisted. <laughs> no, um, I know. Say his wife's ugly. No, you say have you? Um... I mean, no, 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 those will work. <laughs> yeah, but those aren't aren't geography specific. Um, no, you just say have you seen that really great film called Braveheart? 
and then you'll get a two-hour rant about how it wasn't filmed in Scotland and how it's a, a bag of shite and um, and an American made in Ireland, wasn't it? Um, I believe it was John uh, someone I can't remember his surname. He said um, it couldn't be less realistic if it was William Wallace and Gromit. Oh, yeah. It's not. It's. Uh, I I watched that film. Uh, I've seen it a number of times. It's hilarious. It's a science fiction movie. But I went to Scotland for two weeks, came home, and put Braveheart on, and it was hilarious. Um, it was just like watching Tom and Jerry. But anyway, Catherine McCormack uh, is uh, in the office, and she starts to have a bit of a um, uh, a conversation with Andy Osnard. Uh, Catherine McCormack wasn't very complimentary about her role in this film for some years afterwards. She's come to terms with it a bit more, um, but and she's gone into she's become uh, a, a, a big uh, theatre actress now. And indeed, in this film, um, she's got a bit of a thankless role, I have to say. Um, and that's even after starring in a Mel Gibson film. Mm. But uh, Andy tells the ambassador that he's concerned about the threat of the silent opposition, um, whilst he uh, also takes the opportunity of cracking a nearby safe and seducing Catherine McCormick's character at the same time, mentioning, for example, that the uh, safe door is probably tight from lack of use. Yeah, I find it a very... It's uncomfortable slightly... Uh, um, it doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't sit well with her. Um, and also... It's very Alan Bastard. Well, it... <laughs> that is a good way of putting it. Um, but I also noticed that she uh, deflects his attentions uh, at this stage. She does a complete U-turn very quickly, and then she disappears from the plot. Um and I think they might be trying to do something meta with the standard Bond girl. But, um, um, yeah, again, when Brosnan comes out with that line, just tight from lack of use, which she, which she just scoffs at, um, you want someone who's just a bit more um, from the sewer than Pierce Brosnan is. Um, mm. There's a film that Pierce Brosnan did recently with... Um, um, Who's Nanny McPhee? Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson, thank you. Um, he did a, a romantic comedy with her recently in which uh, they divorce, but they still fancy each other. And there's a moment in that film where Celia Imrie goes up to Pierce Brosnan, pinching his bum, saying, God, you're gorgeous. That's the point that Pierce Brosnan is at now. He is being lusted after by Celia Imrie. He's not um, any longer the sort of Connery and in the Connery and Shirley Eaton mould. Um, he's the sort of man that sort of um, well, who appears in Mamma Mia films. I'm afraid to say. Um, mm. Sorry, we Pierce. Little, we get a little history lesson about um, background in. Uh, in uh, Panama, that the CIA installed Noriega as their own puppet. But um, when he tried getting a bit too independent for their liking, the president tried to, President Reagan, um, tried to, to uh, remove the opposition by taking out, taking them out with um, airstrikes. Yes. Um, there's lots of this in the novel. Um, it, this film does quite a good job of um, giving you a little pricey. Harry goes to Mickey's flat and apologises. Um, and they talk about how the old rebels have now become people mm. like lawyers and bankers. They've sold out their 
their principles and their ideals just become wealthy. I mean, that's a standard criticism of all students, radicals and revolutionaries across the world. Look, Harry's not pointing out anything new here, but um, Mickey never got to that point. He is not a lawyer and he's not a banker. He still flies the flag through a drunken haze um, mm. for for the moment where he stood up to um, to corruption. And it's haunted him for the rest of his days. Um Gleason is is playing it a, a little bit too much of a, a comedy turn, um, and I think that does a disservice to the character because the character is very important in this, in this film. Um, and of course, he's got money problems. And Harry, um, being a generous altruistic type, stupidly starts making financial promises. Hmm. And um, letting. Mickey's account slide at the uh, at the tailor's office. Uh, Andy comes to visit the uh, the tailor's shop, where he makes some unsavoury comments about um, Marta. Yes. And, um, Harry casually mentions that she. Oh, yes, she's also a member of the silent opposition. Yeah. So the the film just doesn't give uh, Brosnan a few grace notes to to shit talk. It's this moment where you think you are a, an absolute worm when when he yeah. starts um, saying, um, "I'm not going to repeat it," but he starts saying horrible things about Marta, and then it cuts to Marta um, at the moment that she gets those scars, where you see her being beaten up, and then it flips back to Brosnan being a tosser. Um, so it's I like that, um, but yeah, he's he's. Uh, again, pitching Marta um, as part of the silent opposition, and Uncle Benny is pulling back the the little curtain in the the, um, the measuring um, uh, booth and and whispering and saying, "Look, don't stop! Don't stop lying! Stop dragging your friends into this piece of nonsense because it could go horribly wrong." Mm. Marta, by and the way, uh, uh, sizes up Osnard from the moment she claps eyes on him. She knows that he's. Um, that he's a nasty piece of work. She has well, a moral she ha- barometer. She has a long background in dealing with yeah. terrible people like him that Harry ne- doesn't necessarily have because he's put self-interest first instead of Martha putting a political cause first. Does Harry put self-interest first? He's the one handing out coins on, in his drive to work. He's he's promising twenty grand to um, to Mickey. It's a lot of it's in support of his own position, mm. of of car- continuing to maintain the facade of the the high class tailor and friend to friend to all in power. Yeah, I think I think Harry isn't politically committed. Um, he's just telling whoppers, and he's you know this is basically a boy who cried wolf story, whereas Martha and Mickey both were victims of the the previous regime, and now. Uh, just want to survive and in, and they can see that it's with this fake news folks um, where it's all going to go um, that it could lead to terrible things hmm. uh, Harry goes to the president's palace to have him fitted for a suit where he tries fishing for information about the canal um, yes and later he and Andy meet in a brothel <laughs> Which Andy clearly treating this place like a second home. Yes, having a whale of a time. Harry 
fantastically awkward. It's. Uh, I was struck by um, by this scene because it reminded me of. Um, do you remember? That? Have you seen Smiley's People or read the novel? I haven't. No, I don't. I don't even know the story. Okay, so there's a there's a famous scene in Smiley's People where um, Smiley Alec Guinness um, goes to a strip club. He's on the pursuit of some some piece of knowledge, and um, to see Guinness in that environment is jarring, um, and it's it's wonderfully done. And I was I was reminded of that um, with this that Osnard set up shop above a brothel, um, and indeed on a waterbed, I think, isn't it? Um, oh, it's always a waterbed. It, it is it funny. <laughs> What could, what's the funniest piece of furniture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's either a waterbed or a, a chair shaped like a big hand. There's a waterbed at the end of uh, Gene Wilder's Woman in Red. There's a waterbed in Fletch Lives as well. <laughs> and there the joke is just, it's a waterbed. It's a waterbed, yeah. How hilarious. Yeah, there's never been a waterbed in a Bond film, to my knowledge. I don't think they'd go that far, unless they did Carry On Spying or something. Actually, I wonder if there's a waterbed in Carry On Spying. I bet there is one in Austin Powers. There are circular revolving beds in Austin Powers. I don't think water beds are sufficiently funny or yeah. subtle. Yeah, they're not subtle films. Oh, there was something I was going to say. I've forgotten now. Oh, yes. Um, with regard to Alec Guinness doing scenes in a, a strip club, I recall that when John Gielgud was in um, Caligula... Oh, God. <laughs> um, the, the film. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, he... Um, Apparently said to Malcolm McDowell, "Do you know this is my first sex film?" Well, he got it right because that's how that film was. Uh, it was cut to pieces, wasn't it? And and they put in lots of bouncing bottoms. Uh, yeah, yeah, and actual sex as well. I mean, the the, the full length version is actual pornography. Oh my God! Not just in the the way it's defined by boring religious people but in, in the actual diction definition <laughs> of having people you know you see it going in and everything well i must remember to get a copy of that for my parents i'm sure they'll enjoy that for a sunday afternoon good uh, good luck uh, good call wiping it from wiping it from your search history and indeed i've had two encounters with alec guinness good would you like to hear about them <laughs> no <laughs> Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. When I was at university, um, I spent the second year living um, in the Catholic chaplaincy. Back then, I was a good boy. And as part of the um, the price, part of the many prices you had to pay uh, in living at the Catholic chaplaincy on Gower Street in London, um, was that you had to um, go on the front desk and um, welcome any visitors to the chaplaincy in the evenings. So um, after... You know, you did it once a month and it was like five o'clock at night. And anyway, one evening the phone goes and um, this voice at the end of the line goes, Good evening. Could I speak to Father Derek Jennings? And I went, yeah, yeah, and put him through. And as I went, that was either a very bad impression of Alec Guinness or that was Alec Guinness. Anyway, um, six months later, Father Derek Jennings drops dead. Um, I liked him. God doesn't like people i like tends to wipe them off the face of the planet and i go to his funeral and at that funeral i spot coming down the aisle of this huge cathedral none other than lord fauntleroy um guinness in full 
Tory grandee mode, um, scowling at me specifically. Um, and in his memoirs, he mentions that particular priest. And actually, he doesn't get good press. Um, but my God, there was a bit of a, a force field coming off him. You could really see that that was the guy who told little children, I'll sign your autograph book if you never watch Star Wars again. I thought, hmm. That would have been the ideal moment for you to compliment him on his performance in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> I think he actually probably would have just walked away. Oh, I was to see if the old boy would have lamped you. Yeah. Um, anyway. Um, Lacari adored Guinness. Yes, I remember, I remember reading that Lacari was very happy with how those turned out. No, I mean genuinely loved the man. Um, I think there was a degree of um, this was the father that I, I wish that I'd already had. I mean, Smiley oh. is is actually uh, is Lacari himself to a certain degree, but drifting like gun smoke throughout all of Lacari's fiction is the betrayal by his father, and and he's constantly writing about how organisations provide substitute father figures. Um, I mean, Tinker Taylor is all about a, a, a the mole at the centre of the circus who betrays everybody, um, and and indeed it, it's personal for Smiley because spoiler alert, Jeremy, um, the mole is also sleeps with Smiley's wife, and oh, no, yeah. nobody lets Smiley forget that. They're always saying, "How's Anne? Um, I know there was a lot of trouble between you two, and Smiley's always having to just almost apologise for it. So the betrayal is, is is personal, and there's there's betrayal here. Um, Harry is um, involving all his friends in this little confabulation that he's spinning for for Andy, um, and it's going to turn nasty. But it's blackmail, really, because mm. Andy is threatening to expose Harry as this cheap little arsonist who ran away from the law. So yeah. Harry Harry doesn't feel that he has any choice. And as for arsonist, um, that itself was an act of altruism. He was doing that um, on behalf of his uncle Benny, and um, and it was it was it was like an insurance job, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Um, whilst they're in this brothel, by the way, Uncle Benny appears in the middle of a porn film, um, warning Harry: "Look, stop telling all these lies. What do you think you're doing?" Um, he doesn't and, actually appear in the porn no, film. No, not does he? <laughs> not as a participant in the in the. A porn film, but I mean, um, I mean, if that, I mean, Harold Pinter in a, a porn film, talk about coitus interruptus. <laughs> yeah, there'd be a lot of pauses, that, wouldn't it? Yeah, what a gag, Jeremy. Yes, this is proper sophisticated stuff. You don't get this on. How did this get made? You certainly don't. Um, Harry is spinning a yarn about all the stuff he heard about uh, in the uh, the president's office, and. Pushed by Andy, says, "Oh, they're they're going to sell the canal. What, what are they, who are they going to sell it to?" And he's, his eye catches the screen where there is a a Far Eastern lady doing things. Says, "Oh, to the Chinese. What? Yes, yes, China, China and Taiwan. Uh, they're going to work together. Just literally off the top of his head, mm. and the impact of that very simple lie is huge." <laughs> Is huge and will lead to war by the end of the movie. Yes. Now, um, and um, Andy says, "Are you pulling my pisser?" 
Um, bro- he also he also says uh, while looking at the screen, look at those tits, yum yum. <laughs> yes, not subtle. Um, but the problem that I have with this, and indeed at the novel, is that right from the start of the film, Osnard knows Harry is a bullshit merchant. He he knows his background. And um, he he literally starts out by saying, I'm here to see Mr. Braithwaite, when he knows there is no Mr. Braithwaite and that actually um, that's a lie from, from Harry. And he says that it, to signal that to Harry. So he then asks for intel about the elite. He then asks to say, no, I want to hear much more politically juicy stuff. There could be money in it. Why is he not thinking this is Panama's biggest bullshit merchant? He is the last person... I should be going to for intelligence. Because unlike everyone else Harry um, mixes with, he has something on Harry. And mm. he thinks that Harry won't risk lying to him for fear of being exposed. Yes, I suppose that's true. Um, it's not It's not a watertight explanation, but I think mm. it, it, it makes enough sense that you can just put that to one side and not worry about it. I... I thought the same thing in our man in havana and green certainly thought the same thing because he spins the whole thing as a as a a piece of whimsy right from the start and at the end of that novel uh, the end of that novel has a very different end to both taylor of panama the novel and and certainly the film um so i think green gets away with it better um Whereas the film itself i just think it just skates over that it just says no 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 just don't, don't think about that um, ah, Belisario's yeah. rule. What? Rule coined by Donald Belisario, the creator of Quantum Leap. Right. When people started asking detailed questions about how the science in Quantum Leap was supposed to work, his reply was, do not examine this too closely. That's not what this is supposed to be about. <laughs> You're not supposed to be thinking about how the time travel works. You're supposed to be thinking about all the social and and yes. uh, political aspects of the of the individual stories, yes. not you know why does he have a different face all the time? Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, and and he goes for it. He says this is dynamite, um, and he is basically after money. He thinks that he can use all of this to um, get uh, millions out of the British to. Um, uh, for funding the silent opposition um, and to combating the potential sale of the of the canal to, to the Chinese, um, uh, but he'll use the money to pay off the farm and to financially support Mickey and Marta. Yes, absolutely. And from a political point of view, I think I, mean, I have to say I've I have a problem following politics in in movies, particularly something like this. I have to watch it two or three times. And as far as I can see in this film. Um, by selling the the canal to the Chinese, uh, because the the government and the the uh, the elite ruling families are all corrupt, they're just trying to make their money. But it looks like that what they could do is um, mount an invasion of Panama to oust the corrupt um, elites to stop you know to use the transfer of the canal to the Chinese as the pretext for that, and then. 
um, they will also have on side this supposed silent opposition, which would then embrace the US and say, actually, um, we'd rather have you than our corrupt governments. So it's an interesting little um, political Gordian knot that's at the centre of this. And I think that's probably what the carrier was suggesting when um, when the makers of the film went, we want to push this forward a couple of years. He probably mm. went, we'll try this. Andy pushes Harry to make use of his wife's job mm. by getting pictures of documents. Um, and um, if he doesn't comply, then he'll just tell Louisa the truth. Yep. Um, and Andy is also going back to this British embassy place. Um, suddenly, Francesca is much more uh, um, interested in him. I mean, it's a complete U-turn. Um, mm. He's charming literally the knickers off her there is a uh, hysterically cheesy sex scene um i don't think catherine was particularly happy about that um and this these rumors that um that harry are now spinning are now getting back to the british and they want in on this they think if they can pal up with the guys in washington we can um, get on board with the um with a potential invasion of panama but the Americans aren't taking it terribly seriously so far. No, not yet. They um, they need a bit more assurance, which is why they want pictures of the documents. Yep. Um, Andy is able to... Uh, uh, Harry drops off the uh, photographic film and they uh, meet at a party later on. Hmm. Um, but uh, Louisa wants to know a bit more about their relationship. Um, and this is painting Harry as quite an honourable man and he thinks of himself as uh, an innocent patriot I think, that he's telling the, the British what they want to know in return for protecting Panama um, Yeah I, I think it's personal for him, I think it's no, he's, he wants to A, maintain his great lifestyle with his family and he then wants to help out Mickey and Martha um, and that's about it I think for him um, I think um, Louisa is worried that he is seeing too much of this guy, Andy, um, going out at odd hours, um, mucking about at parties with the um, uh, the dodgy types. She's very much the moral lighthouse of this film. And mm. his lying, his deviousness, his relationship with Andy is now affecting his relationship with his... But yeah, he's snapping shots of the papers that she brings home from work. And Louisa... Uh, winds up warning uh, Harry off uh, interest in the canal and says he's clearly getting more suspicious. Yes. Um, but they have a, a a scene where they're becoming sort of closer and more more romantic and more affectionate, and then that abruptly cuts to Andy having sex with Francesca. Yes. So it's very. <laughs> It's yeah. it's the the healthy relationship to the dysfunctional relationship. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the 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 bros sex scene is definitely positioned as being uh, primal, animalistic, unromantic, transactional. Um, whereas Harry's got a great family life, and um, uh, you know, and they're sleeping. There's no sense of a, of um, there's a, a, a passion or a sexuality between. Louisa and Harry. It's very, um, it is positive, healthy. It's a married life, and that's now in jeopardy. Um, Louisa makes the mistake of saying she wants to meet Andy, and indeed they have a day out. 
Well, they um, uh, Andy and Harry meet at a a, light, a nightclub, which turns out to be a gay club. Oh God, yes, they do, don't and, they? Yeah, and they and they they dance together. And Harry loudly says that he wants out. I think it's just as that the music drops down, so it looks like they're two men breaking up. Yeah, again, again, again it's it's, uh, it's 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 trying to undermine the the Bond image again, but not not doing anything that's going to make his next Bond film unviable. No, and uh, yeah, Pierce Pierce is in touch with his side. In, in in these sorts of things, and he's done this a couple of times in films. It's again that scene doesn't sit quite too well with me. I think it's a little bit. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of the um, the uh, the scene in Police Academy uh, where they oh <laughs> at the blue oyster the blue the blue, the blue oyster, oyster club. club yeah which is meant to be you know ho ho ho. Um, you know, I, when I covered Police Academy for Cinema Limbo, Great I, film. I spoke about I spoke about that at length and how if you were making Police Academy now, you could refashion that so that um, Mahoney is pals with all the all the guys in the gay club, and it's all just a it's just a trick to to put all the the mean character in there because the mean characters are homophobic. Yes. Ma- Mahoney's fine. It's like, hey, Mahoney. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so police he's just doing them a favour. Police Academy is a great film. Um, it's some of it's dated very badly. Well, yeah, yes, <laughs> like I, like I the aforementioned gay jokes. <laughs> but, but I think yeah, you could you could do a version of it now, and you could make it quite socially conscious of the idea of you know recruiting new police from within no. communities. So it's don't go there, don't go there, because you know they will cast Rebel Wilson. You know they will. No, because I'm thinking in New York. If you're doing it in New York, where, you, where you'd have to set it, I think, to make it work, it would have to be within um, communities of colour, for want of a better phrase. So it'd be, be uh, African American, Latin American, um, okay. people from people from non, uh, not non, but sort of not necessarily all white heterosexual yeah, yeah. male characters. A much broader mix. So that oh but yes, we bring them into the fold, and then they police their own communities with the authority of the city, but it's people they know looking after it, so it's community policing. That's a way of making it work. And then you can still have all the h- hilarious hijinks and antics and the slobs <laughs> versus the snobs and that kind of thing. Yeah. But with a sort of just this intelligent, you know, slightly more thoughtful political undertone that doesn't have to get in the way of all the, all the hilarious pranks. Well, and I, women, I, I, and I women with big chests. I don't think it needs remaking. I think it's perfect as it is. It's a matter of time. Yeah, I know. I know. Andy's going to bring over $10 million to fund the silent opposition. Although I think that gets bumped up to $15 million. Yeah, and then um, I think one of the bureaucrats shaves, adds a, 15, a $5 million to it and shaves that off the top for themselves. The corruption goes up the chain. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I've got a page of notes that I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. I see you were necking bourbon whilst watching. Um... I wrote this a year ago, <laughs> a year and a half nearly. All right, I'm not the one who kept cancelling. Yeah, it, it was a pandemic. Yeah. So, what else are you going to be doing? I was working. Believe me, hard and worrying. Obviously, like the rest of the planet. Well, what better diversion is there than a nice, relaxing John le Carre spy thriller? With Pierce. I'm always up for a bit of Pierce. 
on the pierce. Excellent. Um, but the um, American yeah. government starts to get involved and they start thinking of Panama as being a potential 51st state. Yes. And as the, the noose starts to tighten, Mickey starts panicking about the prospect of going back to prison as the silent opposition starts to attract more and more attention. And it ultimately transpires that he's shot himself. Yeah, so um, once, once Andy convinces the British to therefore convince the US that these are not just um, tales out of school that's happening in Panama, um, that's when the money starts coming in. And uh, British ambassador flies out to Panama with a suitcase full of cash. Um, and, yeah, the silent opposition starts getting um, the attention of potentially the gangsters and the crooks running Panama because um, they're hearing rumours of this. Um, and Andy is trying to play off these gangsters as well. Um, and then, of course, Mickey blows his brains out. Um, in the novel, I believe Harry helps bury mickey and uh, again making this a, a very visceral betrayal the evidence of it is right there in front of him uh, here um rush has a scene where he he's bemoaning the fact that he never got to make the suit that he promised mickey um so yeah it's all starting to spiral out of control there's a great scene with um, where the U the US and the British have got this uh, sort of um, definitely 1990s uh, version of uh, MI5. They've got the big screen. They've got the pictures of um, Brendan Gleeson and Martyr, and they're painting them out to be radical revolutionaries with a, a history of sedition. Um, it's it's amusing. They're cutting backwards and forwards to Gleeson zomb zombied out of his coconut. Um, and the Americans are finally buying into this big time, which is very bad news indeed, because they have all the weapons and the missiles. And um, things start to reach ahead over the course of a single evening. Yeah. Um, there's a some sort of big firework display going on, and um, Louisa's taking. I I don't I can't remember what happens in this movie. I saw I saw it I saw it over a year ago. I don't believe that for a second. You've got a, a fantastic <laughs> memory. Um, you can remember things from uh, an obscure 1960s new wave French film. Um, I think it's because yeah, this film that's, that's... is middle brow stodge and it, yeah. it floats over your head. And it, you it's, know, it's, it's fine. It is. It's the definition there's, of fine. There's, there is nothing wrong with it. There is no particular point of criticism at all. Mm hmm. But it there is, is nothing is. about it that particularly stands out. And this is made by the guy who made Zardoz. And other more competent films. In fact, Zardoz is perfectly competent. It's just completely fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah. Exorcist 2 is incompetent. I haven't seen Exorcist 2, so I'm not going to comment well, on that. Well, don't. But, uh, okay. Yes, sir. Crikey. Anyway, Louis... Ex Exorcist 3? <laughs> Don't, I don't want to go down that Exorcist rabbit hole. <laughs> Exorcist three is the only good Exorcist sequel. Mm, okay, because it's a, it's written and directed by the author of the original novel. Okay. Um, Louisa goes 
hunting through Harry's papers and finds a, um, a rather amusing uh, uh, organisation chart that he's drawn, which is depicting uh, Mickey as head of the leader of the silent opposition. And Louisa realises that, um, that Harry's into um, big time, big time flummery, basically. Hmm. Um, but you're quite right. This escalates ridiculously quickly. Um, and whether you actually buy into the fact that Washington would believe um, news uh, that this story is just coming from, first of all, Andy Osnard, who is starting the film as, as being burned out, uh, a degenerate, someone that the British can't trust, so they send him off to Panama, and also just um, uh, rumours from this supposed network that he's discovered. Um, I believe in this film, I might be wrong, but um, Harry... Harry's pseudonym is Buchan. Yes. As in, of course, John Buchan, um, 39 Steps. Um, because, of course, it's important at the end that there is no retaliation. There's no political retaliation on, on Harry. He has to go back to the you know his status quo, although I've got a problem with that. Um, so that's his sort of code name in, in all of this. In Our Man in Havana, things work out very differently and much more whimsically for um, for Wormald at the end of that. Um, I hope I've got that, that name right. Um, but anyway, Washington do buy into it, which means that they're coming with their um, their missiles. And their gunships. Yep. Harry calls Andy and tells him that he has to you know, call the whole situation off, say that there's been some sort of mistake. But... Um, he refuses, and at a military briefing it's stated, oh, that um, Mickey's been assassinated and the military has to move in immediately to prevent the takeover. Yeah. So the, the sort of puppet government that they were hoping to install um, once the US had uh, bombed these, um, these corrupt elite families and their plan to sell the canal to the Chinese, once those had been done away with Mickey and his ilk would be installed as these um, as the puppet leaders, but actually the, they think now that they're all being bumped off, that they've been assassinated. Mm. Um, Mickey didn't want to go back to prison, basically, so he decided to take uh, and he drank a bottle of whiskey and shot himself. Um, the money turns up for uh, for Andy Osnard um, in a suitcase, and um, then Louisa confronts Andy. And this is the scene I've got a big problem with in this film. I think it's... I just think... It looks like uh, Brosnan's about to rape Louisa. Um, and I just find it a bit of a distasteful scene. What did you think of it? I think I can see what they're trying to go for. They're trying just to show that he he is with he, without any kind of scruples. Without any kind of conscience. Mm. But, I mean, bear in mind, this film is 20 years old now. Mm. Um, we know now that, the, the, I think the way this is portrayed in the context, it is unacceptable. I think at the time this was, I think, on the other side of the, the line. My specific problem with this is the um, the, the brief nudity. Not the brief whole body nudity. Oh, um, I, I, I didn't remember that at all. Well, I think, um, yeah, it's... Well, that, that yeah, that is, yeah, that's a bit further over the line then. It is, and I think you could absolutely do exactly the same in this scene and not do that, 
and uh, continue with the story. I thought that, um, and particularly because it's Jamie Lee Curtis, I think I thought there was something, frankly, a little exploitative about it. Um, and I think these days Jamie would probably push back uh, more on that. And indeed, actresses of of her age in this film that she was in this film would probably go, "You don't need that." Um, no. You have just have him have have him be menacing and threatening. Yeah. Stop short of anything. Yeah, and have the two shot of them yeah. uh, on the bed and him forcing himself on her. You just don't need the brief flash that we get of her breasts. You just don't need mm. that. And I do think it's that's just uh, nah, cut that. Um, you know. Anyway, that's what I just say in this film. If you do think about it, there are just these weird moments of just the, of tonal jarringness. But as you uh, are demonstrating, this is the definition of beige. This film, it's um, it's a perfectly amenable thing. You just you know, get it out on DVD for your parents. It'll kill two hours. You See, know. that's the problem. If we'd recorded these two episodes the other way round, we would have done Taylor of Panama January 2020, when it was relatively fresh in my mind still. And now we'd be talking about Mars Attacks, which is such a weird, distinctive film full of very memorable sequences and scenes (laughs) and characters that's still totally fresh in my mind. Yeah, I know. I think the fact the fact that we've done it this way around shows. Yeah, Mars Attacks. Yeah, you know, very bright and colourful, and I can't remember whether or not we agree that it was good or not. Uh, but this, yeah, it's fine. But I think that no, I think that's a valuable thing. It just goes to show that just after twelve short months, okay, of massive upheaval, um, you will struggle to remember this film. Yeah, and and yeah. other films that you can watch thirty years ago are lasered into your memory. Um, I think that's a legitimate criticism of this film. The th- I mean, the thing that I remember most about Taylor of Panama is that it was the last film I saw at the Odeon West End before it was demolished. Oh, God, really? Yeah. And it was, I don't think I actually saw, it might have been the only film I saw at the Odeon West End. But um, not long after, it was knocked down and redeveloped into some cheesy casino hotel. Mm. And... Uh, like the rest of Leicester Square, is a dump. Yes, it's. Um, mm, I can't. First, uh, I don't think I saw it at first, cinema. The first time I saw it at Leicester Square was actually The World Is Not Enough. Oh God, the first film you saw at Leicester Square. Yeah. Really. Yes. It took you until The World Is Not Enough to see a film in Leicester Square. Where do you think I've been living my whole life? Well, clearly not. I long. hadn't moved. I moved to London about um, seven or eight weeks before that film came out. Okay, so you were living in Panama beforehand. Right? I was living. I, hey, I, home. I have no home. <laughs> You're the littlest hobo. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a citizen, I'm, I'm a citizen of the world, mate. With regards to um, to espionage and spying, can I ask you a question? Maybe. When you were at university. Oh, yeah, I've got a story about that. Oh, God. Me and my big mouth. Um, no, I'll finish your question. Well, I was just going to ask whether you were ever approached by the security services to um, do some work for your country. No. However. Oh. No, I mean, I went to King's College London, which is a pretty good university. Hotbed of radicalism. 
Um, well, I think normally they go around Oxford and Cambridge, don't they? Because they want the real cream of the crop and not the, you know, top of the next tier down. You think the cream of the crop are at Oxford and Cambridge? Well, traditionally, that's where they would look. Mm, okay. Do you know that? Were, were you asked? Well, I can't talk about that. Well, if you said no, then clearly that's fine. Do you know and that? You could talk about that. Do you know that when when they approach you? Um, and I'm, I think you probably already know this, you're just not saying anything. There's a line on the little questionnaire they give you and a tick box. And the question is, um, do you think Terminator Genesis is a good film? And I didn't tick the box. Well, they want people who think more creatively, and they clearly thought you were a security <laughs> risk. <laughs> no, I think that they you did tick that box, didn't you, Jeremy? I have never been asked to fill out a survey featuring any such question. However, I did go to a careers fair in my last year at university. Went to a few. But one of them in North London had stands for all kinds of businesses and a, a few government offices and things like that. And there was one for MI5. Really? They were openly recruiting yeah. people. And I thought, well, I'm obviously not going to apply to MI5 for many reasons. But I will have a look through the brochure because when am I going to get another chance? So I had a flick through it and it did say inside that MI5 is, of course, a secret organisation. So if you do apply, regardless of the success of your application, we ask you not to inform friends and family that you have done so. Oh, for God's sake. Because it's the first top of thing that you bring up. Um, if if you, you, you stick it on Facebook, I've just sat an interview at the Thames house. Yeah, they MI five, MI five, not MI six. Yeah, okay, but MI five advertises on on the job sites these days. Um, you know, they're they post Stella Rimington. They are um, they're quite big on the old advertising stuff, uh, particularly in IT. Obviously, I was at UCL um, circa ninety seven or so, and um, UCL has some wonderful cloisters. And I used to. I know. I've I've been to yeah, UCL. You've um, you've seen the corpse of Jeremy Bentham. Uh, stole it. Oh, it was you lot? Oh, yeah. King's College London and University College London. Mm. Listener, in case you're not aware of this, have a long-running rivalry. Well, my brother went there, so I, I know a little bit about it. And, um, yeah, we stole the embalmed corpse of your mm. founder. Yeah. Bit, bit weird you have that on display in the front entrance. <laughs> um, and you, in turn, stole our, <laughs> our stone lion, which is a slightly more reasonable mascot. Although oh, boring. On the back of the... How you got it on the back of the truck, I'll never know. Ask any teenager, do you want to go to university with a stone lion outside it or a desiccated corpse? And I know exactly what most of them I say. Don't e I don't even know where the stone lion is. I don't know where it's supposed to go. Because it might not have been the campus that I was attending. Because I went to the Strand campus, which looks like a glassed-in car park. Mm, I know. And it's one of the ugliest buildings in the world. I know. My brother did a music, music degree there, so he had to go through the, uh, the side door. Oh, yeah. And, the strand. And it and it's such a weird mish, mishmash of departments there. Mm. Yeah. There's the mathematics department and the music department. Well, you, should have, you should have gone to UCL. Christopher Nolan and I went to uh, to UCL. Big big Bloomsbury Theatre at UCL. Great place. They might have had <laughs> slightly more demanding entrance requirements than King's College London. What that that you could have met. <laughs> they don't let just anybody into UCL, you know. Well, my sister got in. But then she did get straight A's at A-level. 
I'm not. I'm not even going to go there. I'm just. She's, she's very clever. Is she? They both are. Right. I think I've mentioned before that I'm the only non-university graduate in my family. I, I think that um, Cinema Limbo itself is is um, um, probably how can I, I put correspondence this? course. <laughs> did you know? Did you know? The Open University doesn't teach film studies. Doesn't it? That's no. that seems to me to be a bit of a gap. I know because I thought, you know, I I don't want to feel left out the whole time. Does the Open University teach a film studies course? No, they don't. Well, go, well, go to Birkbeck. Yeah, you have to physically go to Birkbeck, though. Mm, no, I no, not, not these days. Online courses. I, I checked out the City Lit um, very recently, Art History, and they do an awful lot of online stuff. So oh. it's about 70 quid to do a course on Jackson Pollock, something like that. Um, Birkbeck's great. I went there for two years. Um Anyway, how did we get on to the subject of our checkered uh, academic careers? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, because we were talking about our checkered brushes with the security service. Oh, yes. I was never approached by uh, MI5. Um, and or... I approached them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Neither of us got any luck at all. Um, I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't trying luck. I just wanted to see what was going to happen. Yeah. It's like when I tried uh, trying to get information about something, I rang up the offices of... Um, the film producer Jerry Weintraub tried to see how much information I could get out of them before they realised who I was, which is nobody. Um, Harry chases after Andy as he's heading for the airport with the money. Yep. And it's at this point, actually, that the film diverges because there are two versions of the last ten minutes or so of the film. Are there? It, yes. In the released version, they, um, they run off the road and there's a confrontation and uh, Andy heads to the airport with the money. In the uh, alternative version, uh, Harry gets hold of a gun and shoots Andy dead. What? Uh, what? What alternative version? It's on the DVD. Is it? And is that positioned as a, as a as part of the actual main feature? No, it's a separate. Okay, so it's a deleted thing because the ending of the film is very different to the ending of the book. Um, and it's a betrayal of the book um, because um, the book is a bloodbath and um, Panama burns, basically. And um, in this, the status quo is reasserted. Louisa is able to get to the um, offices of the president of Panama, who uh, informs the authorities in the US and the UK that... There is no plan to sell the canal. This is all a fabrication. And the uh, military threat is averted at the last minute. Andy is able to... Uh, Harry is able to go back home and start to reconcile with his family, while Andy cheerily takes the money off on a private jet and starts seducing the, the stewardess. Yes. Um, he walks off with the, uh, the British ambassador guy, uh, um, saying, could this be the beginning of a beautiful friendship? Um, Casablanca, and, yeah, exactly. And um, I think that this is an incredibly safe ending. I mean, I know they're trying to say that um, the bad guys have got away with it, um, and the good guy hasn't lost everything um, because Louisa accepts Harry uh, back into the family house, 
um, Harry fesses up that actually he wasn't. Uh, he learned tailoring in prison. That he's got this dodgy background and all of this. And the children come to the table, and um, he, he starts to make them breakfast. Yeah, uh, a, a, a typical scene of marital home life bliss. It's all right. Um, he hasn't really had any penalty for, uh, apart from the loss of Mickey, I suppose, that um, telling whoppers don't get you anywhere. And Brosnan uh, has not paid a penalty at all for um, for basically stoking all this fake ne- fake news. Um, whereas in the novel, um, it, yeah, the it, it basically it ends with Harry looking out onto the city of Panama with flames and, and all of this. There is a, a, a clear um, consequences to all of this, rather than just the Americans going, whoops, we've just launched a few missiles, sorry, pull everything back. So I thought it was an incredibly safe ending. Um, in Our Man in Havana, it ends much more whimsically with Wormold. Um, the, the the British basically say, you're a really bad boy, um, but we know we've got a lot of egg on our face for believing all of this nonsense. But you're really good at this, so why don't you come and train loads of spies for us? And it ends with actually Wormold, uh, sort of in a, the sort of school you'd see in a 1950s Ealing movie. Um, with lots of budding espionage types being told how to spin lies and, and spin a cover and all of this, um, which is perfectly in tune with the, the the atmosphere of whimsy and basically this is a fantasy. Um, so I think uh, the novel of uh, The Tale of Panama trumps the film and Our a Man in Havana trumps all of them. Um, and as you say... I. I thought that you were going to ask me at the start of this whether or not I I liked the film. And in all honesty, my opinion of it is the same as yours, which is that I have no strong feelings about this one way or the other. Um, it's not a film that I would necessarily put on for um, the, uh, the depth of its politics, the um, uh, soaring acting performances, um, or um, an action fest. Um, it's the definition of middle brow stodge. So you've had a nice evening meal with someone at a good restaurant. Let's go and see a movie. Then we'll get into a cab and then we'll go home. And what was the film? It was perfectly fine. Um, and that's, I think, the best that you can say about The Tale of Panama. It's had great reviews. Um, people seem to really go for it. But people give Le Carre a bit of a free card. I think they, they're too generous with Le Carre. His his track record is such that he's earned, I think, all the great artists in literature and film and television, I suppose, you know, artists who work in television, they all have at least one big dud. And if the rest of their output has been of a sufficiently high standard, then you can skate over the dud as, ah, oh, well, they had an off week. Yeah, they had yeah. an off year. You know, but, you know... But look, look at all the look at the rest of their body of work. Look at how fantastic that is. And it's the same with Lacarry. I mean, look at his incredible body of work. Mm. And if the Tailor of Panama is his weakest book, would you think that's the case? In a short answer, I wouldn't say it's his weakest book. No, but one of his weaker ones. Bottom oh yeah. Third. Oh, absolutely. This is definitely uh, lower tier Lacarry. Um, then I think you know he's the strength of all his other work. 
yeah, you can wave this one away. I mean, uh, you're quite right. I mean, when I say lower tier Lacari, the bar is incredibly high, and the lower Absolutely, tier, yeah. lower tier Lacari is light years in front of so many other writers. The Taylor of Panama is is quality stuff, um, and that's what's attracted Borman and Brosnan and 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 uh, and built the project up for itself. The second you go, we've got a script. It's based on a John Lacari. You've basically got to go for launch immediately. Um, and that's presumably why our kind of this our kind of traitor with Ewan McGregor is a, a right old piece of stodge. Um, and McGregor is in it with um, Naomi Harris, um, and another Bond alumnus. Exactly, alum alum alumna, I should yeah. say. And uh, it's 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 a car with some very shaky wheels. That film. Um, but even so, it's got ideas. It's about a piece of uh, politics. It's got um, some pretty good acting in it. Um, you're not going to think too hard about it. It's directed by Anton Corbin, isn't it? Uh, our, our kind of traitor, yeah, as far as oh, I'm yeah. aware. He's a very fine filmmaker. Yeah. It's interesting to see uh, the number of foreign filmmakers who are intrigued by Le Carre, uh, because that's a good plus point for doing Le Carre. It wasn't Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy by... Um, Thomas Alfredson. Thank you, and um, he brings the, the distant the, the eye. Little, the little drummer girl was um, not Bong Joon Ho, the, the another South Korean filmmaker. Oh goodness! Uh, the director of um, the host and um, Stoker, I think. I can't remember. His, I can't remember his name offhand. But yeah, it's it's the um, it's the cultural distance. Yes, and Fernando Morales did um, the Constant Gardener, who's Brazilian. I, I um, found that film very boring, but uh, I thought it was fine. But um, it's always the the British viewed from outside. Yeah, which I find, which I, is all I always find really interesting to see my own culture through the eyes of someone who's from outside it. Yes, which is why I keep saying I want to see a Werner Herzog film about the UK. <laughs> I want. I want to know. I want to know what I look like to him. <laughs> I'd be up for that big time. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I can. I can see why there is that appeal because his his Lacari's work is so so English and so much about Englishness. Yes. That it communicates that very clearly to someone from a different culture. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's the for me, it's the drilling into the minutiae of. Um, the English at war with each other. Um, that's what attracts me to his fiction and the quality of his writing as well. I have to say, I get I, when he was alive, when his new books came out, um, particularly the last Smiley novel, that was a no-brainer Christmas present for my mother. Um, exactly the sort of thing that she would lap up. But for me, I wasn't running to the latest Le Carre novel. Um, it's not... I didn't feel an excitement about his writing um, I knew it was high quality but it didn't rev my engines and um, you, you can unfortunately say that about Exhibit A, The Tailor of Panama it's alright um, it's definitely not terrible but at the same time it's definitely not um, brilliant Thanks to Anthony for making the time for this recording Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast with over 90 episodes available, so please do download, review, and subscribe. 
We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, sincerity is a virtue, but truth is an affliction. Listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.